everybody. Welcome back to another episode of TBD with Dan and Bill. Good afternoon. Today we're talking about a really cool complex story called Mimsy Where the Boar Goes by Lewis Paget. Who is not actually Lewis Paget, who is actually Henry Kuttner and his wife Catherine Moore. Both of whom are known individually for their contributions to early sci-fi as well. In fact, people that we may wind up covering or you know, talking about in other episodes individually. So this story was a, was published in Astounding Science Fiction, as so many were, back in 1943. Yeah, this is a fabulous story, in my opinion. I mean, it's it's short, but there's a lot of things to unpack while you're going through it. It's another one of those stories that when they did a, a, a poll recently, well, recently, sometime in the last decade, of the science fiction writers of America, this is one of the stories that was ranked in the top 15. And in fact, if I remember right, it was it tied for fourth. Yeah, so, I mean, it's entirely possible anyone listening to this podcast has, has heard or read this story before, I would say. But um, if you haven't, I definitely rec- recommend giving it a read. It's pretty easy to find pretty much anywhere out there in the in the internet universe or in your favorite local bookstore. It's much anthologized. It, it's one of those stories that people have celebrated for a really long time, so it's really easy to get your hands on. So most simply put, it's a story about a guy who sends a box of children's toys back through time, and it lands in two places. Well, actually, he sends two boxes back. One lands in California, one lands in London, or in the UK anyway, in 1942. And stuff happens. The way that the story plays out, it's much more complex than that. Yeah, absolutely. As we usually do, we try to give a little bit of overview of the the characters and the story and the, I don't know if you call him an an inventor or a scientist or or what, uh, what this futuristic being, they kind of imply that he's human or some type of advanced human at least, but his name is Unta Horsten. And as, as Bill just said, he's a, well, he wants to invent time travel, not quite sure what he's doing. So he builds this thing, looks around. He's like, I got to test this with something. Grabs a box of his kid's toys. He's like, ah, these are useless. Throws them in the box, presses the button, shoots them through time. He waits, nothing happens. And he's like, well, damn, that didn't work. So he's like, well, I'll try again. Destroys the first machine, builds another one, grabs another box of toys, presses the button, bam, it goes back in time, doesn't come back. He's like, ah, screw this. I'm done with time travel, and apparently moves on to other concerns. And that's the last we hear of Unta Horsten in the entire story. The boxes, however, have a different fate. So, and one of the things that's that we want to note right away is that although his future and his species is indeterminate it's implied in various ways throughout the story that he represents some sort of evolution along the human species so somewhere in the future how far in the future it says millions of years in the future so this is a a far-flung kind of future that he is coming from and sends stuff back to what would have been the present but in 1942 as we said so the the first box, of course, uh, is the main focus of the story, and it is discovered by a seven-year-old boy who goes by the name of Scott Paradine. He's off just doing random 1942 kid things, exploring his neighborhood, 
runs across this box of really cool stuff, gets his pocket knife out, you know, pries it open, which causes the you know x-dimensional box to become present in 1942. All the toys come out of it, and he's like, ah, this is pretty cool stuff. He picks up his first toy. It's uh, they're actually kind of hard to describe, I would say. You know, of course, being futuristic toys, they're, they'd be a little hard for any of us to describe for another dimension, but he describes the first thing as a, a woven cap, which he immediately throws away because he's like, ah, this is a hat. Who cares? Uh, the next thing he picks up is like a, he calls it like a miniature TV set. He looks in this kind of cube thing and, and he can see these characters moving around doing things. They're like building a house or something like that. And uh, and he's like, man, it'd be really cool if the, that house caught on fire. And bam, immediately inside the cube, the house catches on fire. And the fire department shows up and starts putting it out. And this is our first glimpse that, you know, these toys have something to do with the ability to communicate with the human brain. And in relatively short order, we wind up meeting the rest of his family and, and a couple other people. His, he's got a two-year-old sister named Emma. His dad, Dennis, who's a philosophy professor, his mom, Jane, who it's implied has some sort of education, but, you know, typical of, of the 40s, seems to be a stay-at-home mom. It's 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 hard to say exactly. Um, and then the eventually we, we run across a child psychologist, another professor from the university by the name of Rex Holloway. Rex Holloway. He sounds like a detective. Yes. It sounds like something from... Some kind like, of film noir kind of exactly, a guy. Exactly. Rex Holloway. <laughs> Rex Holloway, PhD. <laughs> so, so yeah, so Scott basically, he brings all these toys home. You know, he's playing with them. He's kind of hiding them from his parents because that's just what kids do. The first night, he's playing with his little box. And the, the first indication we get even that anything is happening is the, the family sits down to dinner. And Scott, like, starts eating his food, gets about halfway through, and he's like, I'm done. And his family's like, you eat all the time. What's going on? And he's like, well, I just, I, I don't need to eat as much now because I've learned how to do it correctly. And they're, this is a little odd because this is a seven-year-old kid saying, well, I'm, I'm using the correct amount of saliva to get the right nutrients out of my food or something to like that effect. And this is kind of a little bit of an abnormal behavior. So you're like, a lot of things you see in this story, they're they're little bits and pieces of abnormal behavior that kind of you think are adding up to a pattern, but no single thing throughout the story gives you any impression that something really strange is going on. So as the as the evening continues, more starts to happen with the toys. Uh, after dinner, he begins playing with this thing that looks, well, that the, his dad, Dennis, describes as an abacus, even though that's a really not appropriate kind of explanation of it, but it's a thing that's a... It calls it like a tesseract with beads on it that you can slide around on these wires and and force them to go in different places and in different directions. Yeah, it's about a foot on a side and it has all these crisscrossed and intersecting wires. And at first he thinks that the beads are like punctured by wires, that they're, in other words, going along a rail, but instead they have grooves and they're they're... They can't be pulled off, but they can be manipulated. And Scott, as he is playing with it... And it shocks you if you get it wrong, by the way. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is, is he's, as he's moving things around, 
if he moves them in a way that the abacus, we'll call it that because that's what they call it, but if, if he moves it in a way that, that the abacus doesn't like, he gets a shock from it. Well, he slowly figures out how not to get shocked. And so, in other words, he's learning the patterns of this thing. His sister is like, ooh, gimme, gimme, gimme. And she begins playing with that as well. And so this, this becomes a pattern where Scott brings out the toys from the box and he and his sister take turns interacting with them. And the adults basically take turns being confused and... And ignoring the whole situation. Yes, they, they, do, not, they do not process at all. They don't grasp any significance of this whatsoever. They're like, yeah, there's these kids' toys. They don't make any sense. Um, in fact, they I mean they do ask where they came from, and and Scott basically you know gives this oh Uncle Harry gave it to us, knowing that Uncle Harry can't be contacted because of course this is 1942, and you know Uncle Harry being out of town apparently is like him being on the moon; he can't be found anywhere. So the adults basically say, yeah, they're just children's toys. What harm can they do? We don't get it, but hey, they're kids' toys. Well, and so meanwhile, the kids continue to explore. And one of the things that we see... Particularly Emma. Yes. Emma with the abacus. We we see that she very quickly takes to some of these toys much quicker than Scott does, even though she's only two years old. Yeah. And, and in fact, she gets to the same level that Scott is at in a surprisingly short period of time. And she really becomes, even surpasses his ability to manipulate specifically the abacus and then there's a doll that that enters the equation that at first just looks like an ordinary doll but emma quickly figures out that parts of it can be removed layers of it can be removed and the closest description would be something like a a medical school or a biology program mannequin that you can take apart and you can look at the organs and you can pull off the layers of muscle and stuff like that but when the parents find that at first, they're a little disturbed because they're thinking, whoa, this is kind of a gruesome toy to be giving to a kid because you can see the muscles, you can see the organs. But as they take a closer look, they also start to register that there are body parts that are altered, that it doesn't seem to be, well, it's not consistent with their own anatomy. Right. There's there's different organs, there's different systems, but again, in typical parent fashion, they're like, well, you know, it's a doll, but... We don't really know what it's trying to say, but, you know, what harm could it do to let the children play with it? It must just be a toy. And so toy, in general, becomes synonymous with not worthy of greater scrutiny or attention. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, I mean, and actually they say, actually, I'll read this quote here. It says, meanwhile, in the adjoining room, Emma was sliding the beads to and fro in the abacus. The motions didn't seem so strange now, even when the beads vanished. She could almost follow that new direction, almost. And again, you start wondering, what what is she actually seeing? And what is this new direction that's being referred to in the story? You know, kind of the same thing with Scott. They said he's looking in the crystal cube and mentally directing the building of a structure somewhat more complicated than one that had been destroyed originally. He, too, is learning and being conditioned. But again, the question is conditioned to what? But again... Stuff happens. Uncle Harry, Uncle Henry, whichever it is, is is unavailable for comment at the beginning. And mom gets sick and is off her her regular routines for a week or so. And dad has exams at the university. 
And so the children are just kind of left to their own devices. So the kids have, you know, a couple couple days or weeks to play with these toys, pretty much unsupervised by, by the parents. Yeah, and then Dan... Something happens, remind me of what it is, where they wind up reaching out to a child psychologist. This is where Rex Holloway right. comes in. Yeah, but basically it sounds like what happens is Scott brings one of his toys to school or something, and you know some other kid looks at it, gets scared, probably you know runs home, tattles on Scott to his parents or something. But anyway, it gets back to the parents, and they're like, hey, let, let's take another look at these toys again. They pour them a lot on the table, and they get more and more confused. I mean, they were kind of confused before, but nothing bad was happening, so they are just letting it slide. But now that something bad has happened, they're like, huh, where do these toys really come from? They're, they can't find them anywhere. They've never heard, they, they say they were made in New York, which of course in 1942 is where everything is made apparently. But they can't find anything like them, and, and either Jane or, or Dennis says, well, maybe a psychologist made these toys to educate kids. And Dennis says, oh, yeah, there's this guy at the university called Rex Holloway. We'll, we'll bring him in. And lo and behold, our new character shows up in the story. That's right. And, and they begin talking. Well, I, specifically, Dennis, Dad Paradine, is meeting with Holloway and is explaining patterns that he's seeing with his children's behavior and specifically mentions things like the, the youngest, Emma, makes scribbles like any kid might with a pencil on paper and the older brother can look at them and can draw some sort of significance out of them that no one else would be able to draw. And they are communicating in ways that they haven't before. Uh, and, and so just all of these little things start to accumulate. And at the end of the day, Rex is like, hey, let me come on over to the house and, and watch for a while. Yeah, and and again, like so many other things, the parents see these kids communicating and just kind of say, oh, you know, they've made their little secret language. It's no big deal. Holloway comes over, and after watching for a while and, and interacting with the kids for a little while, he winds up saying, I'm glad I came here tonight, but not completely. This is very disturbing, you know. And it goes on where he says, we're dealing with madness. He smiled at the shocked looks that they gave him. All children are mad from an adult viewpoint, he says. Babies, of course, are not human. Babies have minds which work in terms of categories of their own, which cannot be translated into terms and categories of the human mind. And it launches into this new element of the story where we begin looking at the differences in the structure and the processes of stages of development of the human mind from the very, very young to the formative during childhood. And then by the time we are adults, it's completely different. And we'll circle back to that later on and talk about it in greater significance, but it actually has quite a bit to do with the plot as they are exploring these explanations for how this works. Yeah, yeah. The, the takeaway, basically, that Rex gets to is that, you know, we as humans, adult humans, have been conditioned to look at the world in certain ways, right? And he mixes up a lot of things like geometry and mathematics and some other stuff, but you know, his point is that our brains look at the world through a certain way because, you know, as we develop from, you know, embryos to babies to kids to adults, you know, we, we learn how to interpret the world around us. But then he's like, but what if we what if we started on a different path really early in life? And he refers to it as X logic, you know, as opposed to like I think he calls it Euclidean logic or whatever, you know, we're we're used to as humans. 
So he say, so he's like, what if kids learn something different earlier that sets them on a different path and likens it to, you know, some people use geometry to solve math problems, but other people learn algebra to solve math problems. And it's a different way of doing the same thing, but it uses very different mental processes to get to a different result. And he poses this theory that the toys were made by someone. He doesn't venture a guess at the beginning who that might be. But he says that the toys are, are, are created by someone as, a, as a, an engaged, engaging, interactive teaching mechanism. And he says, you know, if it was just repetition, it would become boring really quickly. But it must become adaptive. It must help them solve problems and that the problems themselves evolve and change so that it continues to hold their interest. And this is just, this seems too wacky at first for the parents. Um, Mom, Jane in particular, just says, I don't know. I don't like the things that this guy is saying to us. Right. But eventually Rex does take all the toys away because he wants to study them in his lab. Uh, And there's a little sequence. I'm not sure whether it comes like right before this or a few days later. But uh, it's a little interplay between Scott and Emma where they're sleeping, but while they're sleeping, they're communicating. And the text is a little hard to follow, but he says, they'll take the toys away. The fat man, list of a dangerous maybe, but the Goric direction won't show. Avankaris, done, hasn't them. Intersection, bright and shiny, Emma. She more caportic hide now then. I still don't see how to. The Varnar, Lizari dist. And the the next part of the text says, a little of Scott's thoughts could still be understood, but Emma had become conditioned to X much faster. She was thinking too, not like an adult or a child, not even like a human, except perhaps a human of a type shockingly unfamiliar to genus Homo. And it becomes pretty clear at this point, and in the events that happen immediately after that moment, that although Scott is the older of the two siblings, Emma is actually teaching him things through their communication. And it begins this exchange between them, or this interchange, I should say, where she will communicate something either by a, by a word or a mumble or a scribble or even through sign language, and they'll communicate back and forth where he will sort of process and refine his understanding of things and then check with her and... This becomes a pattern then between the two of them where she thinks things, she communicates an understanding of things, he tests out hypotheses and is working through details for himself and on her behalf, but there's she's the one who ultimately becomes the leader in terms of the th- thoughts that are emerging between them and in terms of the actions that those thoughts result in. And, uh, and and so we get to this point where Rex Holloway takes all their toys away and the kids seemingly more or less go back to normal. Scott goes back to school. They, they you know, do normal kid type things. Jane becomes much more content because she's looking at her kids and she's like, oh, they're back to normal. Everything's cool. You know, they still talk to each other in this strange language and do some odd things. But then after all, their kids. You know, Dennis is a little bit more concerned, but he's also kind of still, you know, looking at the world through rose-colored glasses and, and giving the whole thing a pass. But at the same time, we still get some 
some indications that the kids are still seeing things a little differently. For example, there's one part where Scott's out with Dennis and looking, they're, they're just, you know, at the top of a hill looking at the landscape and, and Dennis is, he's like, he's like pretty, isn't it? Scott had examined the scene gravely. It's all wrong, he said. Hmm? I don't know. What's wrong about it? Gee, Scott lapsed into puzzled silence. I don't know. So you get the idea that even though they're acting normal, they're still looking at the world in a different way. There's another moment that ties in with that as well. This odd conversation, well, odd from the perspective of Paradigm, of Dennis, the dad, where Scott comes up to him and asks him about eels. And specifically, they begin discussing... Or salmon, isn't it? Well, it starts off with eels, and then salmon become part of the conversation as well. But basically, it's about uh, animals, aquatic creatures specifically, who, through part of their genetic impulses or part of their, um, their, their species instincts, I should say, go through a process of moving to a place where they can spawn, where they can lay eggs, and they can leave their young behind, and then they head back out to wherever. So they go from, say, from the ocean, from the sea, upstream, lay eggs, and then basically abandon their young, and they move off, and the young are born, and then some instinct drives them to get back to the place where they're going to live out their lives until it's their turn to reproduce. And the point of it is that along the way, they have to learn what they're supposed to learn to get to one, transport themselves back, you know, downriver to the ocean, for example. Uh, But they're learning how to survive as they go. And this gets Scott very intrigued. Yeah, this is something that holds his attention and and dad can't figure out why it would be on his radar for any reason. But they have this conversation and but the it lingers and it comes back up. For dad later on and it becomes something that's that's disturbing to him yeah and what scott says he's like this is only part of the big place it's like the river where the salmon go why don't people go on down to the ocean when they grow up and says paradigm realized that scott was speaking figuratively he felt a brief chill the ocean right and he begins to process that what scott's kind of saying here is that the universe is calling in some way, shape, or form. And he's not sure what to do with this. He's not sure that he's really on the right pathway of, his, of, of thinking with this, but he's unsettled. Right. And so this brings us to the fate of the second box. And so then there's this curious little pause, this sort of interjected vignette where we learn the fate of the second box. So we've established everything that's going on with the paradigms, and with Rex Holloway, and then we cut away, and there's... Yeah, and what they what we end up cutting away to is this young girl, whose name is Alice, and her Uncle Charles, who are apparently out and about in the countryside around London, and Alice is singing one of her children's songs to herself, and, and Uncle Charles is like, well, that's, that's a pretty cool song. And you know, Alice is like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get it right. Um, if I can sing it just in the right order, I, I think what it tells me is I think it tells me something like the way out. And Charles is like, that's nice, Alice. Yeah, we don't get any of the details just yet, but we understand 
that she is singing some sort of nonsensical rhyme that has a particular order of words. And yeah, she's she's concerned about getting them just right when her uncle offers to write them down for her. And she says, yep, you got to make sure to, to write it exactly as I said it, because otherwise it won't make any sense. And of course, it doesn't make any sense to us yet. That realization comes later. And doesn't make any sense to her uncle Charles. Right. So. He just he's placating his niece and is is just in the moment, you know, just having a nice little afternoon jotting things down in his notebook. And then we come to, I guess, what we would, would call the climax of the story here, which is a scene where the children are they're playing, doing their children things and arranging, you know, objects in certain orders or Scott and Emma is or, or Emma's directing Scott and and uh, Dennis is kind of on the sidelines watching what they're doing and completely not understanding it because he's like, why does the rock go there? Or why does the stick go there? And, and the kids are like, well, of course it goes there, right? In typical child logic. Um, eventually, you know, Dennis goes away, starts doing other things and he eventually hears this this commotion and the kid's saying something like, that's it, that's it, you've got it. And, and, he, and Dennis gets this overwhelming sense, something's wrong. He, he runs upstairs and he sees the children vanishing. And in the text it says, they went in fragments like thick smoke in a wind or like movement in a distorting mirror. Hand in hand they went in a direction Paradigm could not understand. And as he blinked there on the threshold, they were gone. Emma, he said, dry-throated. Scotty, on the carpet lay a pattern of markers, pebbles, an iron ring, junk, a random pattern, a crumpled sheet of paper blew towards Paradine. He picked it up automatically. And on the paper is that snatch of children's poetry, the nonsense that we were learning about from Alice and her uncle. And it turns out to be a passage from the Jabberwock. From Alice in Wonderland, for those of you who know the story. Right, yeah, well, specifically Alice Through the Looking Glass, so the second one of them. And it's the, you, you, I'm sure you would recognize it. Twas Brillig and the Slithy Toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the Borogoves and the Moam Wraths outgrabe. And it continues on. Well, that's all the, the, that's the fragment that is left here. Of course, the, the poem, The Jabberwock, is much longer. Right, and so Scott, or not Scott, uh, Dennis picks it up. He looks at it. He sees it's all been scribbled over and obviously looked at it bunch of different times and it's the basis for whatever is happening right he sees or he says a perfect mathematical formula giving all the conditions in symbolism the children had finally understood the junk on the floor the toves had to be made slyly vaseline and they had to be placed in a certain relationship so that they'd gyre and gimbal yeah and then he says lunacy said but it hadn't been lunacy to emma and scott they thought differently they used x logic all the notes Emma had made on the page, she translated Carol's words into symbols that both she and Scott could understand. The random factor had made sense to the children. They had fulfilled the conditions of the time-space equation and the Moam-Rath's outgrabe. And so we're left at the end of the story with these, you know, we don't know where they've went. The, the hint or implication is that they have traveled forward in time or at least dimensionally or someplace that we can right. understand as adult humans. Perhaps this is the inspiration for Back to the Future. I think it's kind of funny that, that Dennis says, 
He says, even if he went insane, he still couldn't figure out how they had done it because it would be the wrong kind of lunacy. So even our insanity is constrained by our, by our dimensional thinking. And all he knows at this point is that the children are gone and that he has no way of following, he has no way of understanding, and no matter what he does, he will not be able to recreate the conditions, mentally, emotionally, whatever else, logically, to be able to put things together. Well, he knows what he knows where the path is because it's sitting right in front of him. But he can't understand it. But he doesn't know what the path is, exactly. And one of the key moments there is that they left in a direction that he could not understand. Yep. What was the way that it was worded there? Um, a direction that Paradigm could not understand. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what he said. That is what it was. I was thinking that I had it wrong. So, like we said, this is a, it's a story that has a fairly straightforward plot. In the, the events lead relatively quickly in terms of the chronology of the story or the timeline of the story from beginning to end. But in terms of the pathway that we take as readers and the understanding that's developed, and of course, then the questions that it poses to us, it's far, far more complex. And, and as you were saying right at the beginning, it's a, it's a really, really wonderful, rich story that it's, it, it, it's not surprising at all to me that this is one that is often celebrated by writers and readers alike as among the best in American, well, or in this case, English sci-fi. Yeah, and, and I'm not really sure, Bill, what, what, what do you think the key takeaway is from this story, or, or is there just a, too many to list? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. In some ways, I think it, it, it is asking the question, just like other stories have asked, what does it mean to be human? In a way, this asks, what does it mean to be alien? Right. And it tries to explore... You know, we're talking about uh, a race that is evolved from humans, but is so different in the way that they are physically structured and so different in the way that they are mentally or, or um, intellectually structured that they represent a different species at this point. And so that is enough to render them as alien. And that is a really fascinating kind of concept to toss out to readers, especially back in 1943. Yeah, and I'm not really sure, I mean, the word alien is interesting because it doesn't seem yeah. like Emma and Scott are, you know, they're still human, right, genetically and physically. The only thing that's really changed is they've found a different way to think about things. And that that way of thinking is what really resonates as the alienness of their actions because it's incomprehensible to us what they're doing. And at the end, it becomes incomprehensible to us, you know, what happens to them. So that's where the, the alienness and the weirdness comes in. Well, when you compare it to a story like Desertion by Clifford Simak that we covered before and the whole notion of, of, um, of pantropy where you transform a body from one race, one species, into something else so that it can survive in a different environment, this isn't exactly that kind of transformation, of course, but what it does is it poses the possibility that transformation to acclimate to a new kind of context could be, or maybe even more effectively would be, intellectual rather than physical. Yeah, and one of the things that, that I think is very interesting is it's sort of like, you know, what if this is really true, 
right? What what if we really are capable of looking at different ways of perceiving things, but we're just simply not trained in how to do it because we we don't know how to to look at things. And of course, by the time that we've indoctrinated ourselves into our normal way of thinking, it's all gone. There's a lot of reference in the text um, where they they talk all about the differences between kids and the differences between adults and evolutionary biology and how you know how uh, you know fetuses and embryos and and babies perceive the world through their senses and it's sort of like you know at, at some point in time you had to learn what it meant to hear something of course none of us remember what it meant to learn how to hear but what if there was some other thing out there that we could learn how to do if only someone had shown us how to do it at an early age well, one of the things that I explored in my graduate studies was the notion that there are different ways of knowing. And and, and that's, that's one of the things that, that gets posed here is that uh, you, you look at the world through different filters. So philosophy, for example, is, is a filter. Science is a filter. Mathematics becomes a way of processing. And so the idea that we would find different ways of looking at the world and that those different ways represent a significant shift, whether you call it a paradigm or a culture or whatever, that's not so out there. But the idea that taking somebody far enough down a pathway would change them fundamentally so that they become something else in the way that they think, that's a pretty interesting kind of reality change to be, to be presenting to people. Yeah, and what the the one character that's really interesting in the story, I think from that perspective, is Scott, because he's kind of cast in the role as the translator between, you know, this new way of thinking that, that Emma represents and sort of the normal educational process, because he's seven, right? He's not old enough to really know what it means to be a human adult, but he's not young enough to be able to understand fully what it means to embrace this other type of viewpoint. And so he kind of scrambles to grasp the concepts of either one in an attempt to explain what's going on, you know, either to Emma from one side or to his parents from the other side without really having the basis to be able to do so. Well, and an interesting contrasting character then is Alice, because although her presence in the story is very short-lived, one of the key elements or one of the key descriptors in there is that she realizes as she is reciting the words to the Jabberwock, that although she understands what the words mean, she understands that it describes a process and that it is about defining the way home or the way, she also realizes that she is too old to follow. So she cannot, for whatever reason, enact the knowledge that she has, but she has the knowledge. But it's through her saying it, her uncle writing it down, and then those words being published and transposed, or not transposed, but the being um, distributed to people that then Scott and Emma find them in their hands and they're able to make use of them because they are not too old. They've gone through a process where they can go further down the pathway to transformation than Alice could. Yeah, another, another thing that's interesting about this story in general is a lot of early science fiction, and probably science fiction in general, doesn't really use children very much as any type of protagonist or, or any type of, you know, plot device. Uh, it, it's probably much more prevalent in, in horror fiction, right? If you think of Stephen King or 
you know, even Ray Bradbury, you know, as a horror slash science fiction guy, uses kids a lot in in his stories. But in general, you know, a lot of science fiction, I think, at least early science fiction, kind of glossed over the role of kids in these societies. Yeah, we start to see things that emerge, as, you know, like young adult or, you know, what's shorthanded to YA now. Um, you, you, a lot of stuff in fantasy specifically. So you had, you had, um, like C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. Right. Or that hideous strength throughout of the silent planet, that series. Oh, right. Right. Uh, yeah. The Paralandra, is that what they were called? Yeah. Paralandra. Um, and then, you know, you had somebody like Madeline Lengel who was doing, um, a wrinkle in time and then the wind in the door where you've got characters who are either elementary school or, or, or teenagers i can't remember because it's been a while since i've read those but we we eventually get to a point where there's a there's a significant body of literature that emerges that has a science fiction or a science fantasy kind of feel to it that involves children and it becomes super popular but like you just said early sci-fi no that wasn't the case at all that yeah you, you didn't find a bunch of kids running around on atomic spaceships apparently so one of the reasons that kids are part of it is the authors making that claim that the the younger the mind, the more malleable and the more adaptable and the less fixed in one particular kind of logic. And of course, there's all kinds of learning theory that goes along with that that supports that kind of idea. Well, tied to that, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the discussion of the toys. And it's Rex who says, the perfect toy you see is both instructive and mechanical. It should do things to interest a child, and it should teach, preferably unobtrusively, simple problems at first. Yeah, if the kids if the kids know they're getting taught, they'd be like, "Oh, I'm out of here." Right. But if they think it's you know they think it's fun and instructive at the same time, they're much more likely to stick with it. And we use that kind of gamification in learning processes all the time now. You know, so at at the time it. I don't know. I, I wasn't a parent back in the 40s, uh, but I know that in my lifetime and as someone who's raised kids, you know, there's a lot of toys that, you know, we have deemed educational and therefore of greater merit somehow. But the idea behind it is just that if you give kids problems that are even relatively complex, they're far more capable of understanding and of adapting than we would typically give them credit for. Yeah, and another thing, um, speaking of kids adapting... One thing I I think this story has a tie into that I I don't think I've ever actually seen it, but if you've ever read Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke, oh right, the third part of the book is where the children, you know, evolve into the next phase of humanity, essentially right before the eyes of the parents, and you know they also end up going on this sort of dimensional journey, you know, leaving the human race behind. But uh, I think these two stories are very similar in in spirit. Yeah, there's that sort of evolution in real time. And, you know, triggered by the events and the not not so much the processes, but the the way that they uh, uh, that they respond to the challenges that they face triggers that evolution, that adaptation. Absolutely correct. You know, looking at some of the other things we try to cover, you know, one of the things we try to look at is some of the dated elements, but this is a contemporary story. I mean, I don't really think there's anything in here that we would call out as as truly odd or, or would really date the story, which, you know, makes it even better from my point of view. 
Ian, we don't have enough of a sense of that futuristic far-flung society to, to have anything to, to worry about. We just have a guy tinkering in his lab or his living room or whatever the case may be, you know, making a time machine, tests it out, doesn't know that it works. But we don't really get anything about his context. Like you said, everything is actually contemporary to 1942. Yeah, although it's kind of funny talking about that time thing, you know, they're, they're, it's not really implied, but the question kind of comes up is, you know, what if they are, came back or what if Scott came back, right, from wherever it is they went to dimensionally to try to, you know, maybe educate the rest of us? You know, is this kind of a time travel paradox story or, you know, was, was Scott and Emma disappearing from the timeline actually part of past history if they came back with that, you know, and they, they helped the human race evolve into new dimensional beings, would that be some kind of causal time loop? Well, and tied to that as well, if they came back, would they still be able to communicate with us? Because Emma is, well, she loses. It seems like Scott certainly should be able to because he had some of the concepts. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and if we use Alice as a as a sort of complement there, we know that she is for some reason too old to transport, but she understands things. So we would think perhaps then that Scott would retain the ability to continue to translate between cultures, between logics. Oh, and if uh, I don't think we mentioned it earlier, but there was actually a movie made out of this called The Last Mimsy, which, again, like most movies, really doesn't have that much to do with the story. But if I remember it correctly, it was mildly entertaining if you feel like you want to go watch it. Just don't get any conception that it's anywhere near as good as the story. I have not actually seen the film. I, and this is one of those moments where I'm not sure that reading the story, because I like it so much, I'm not sure that I'm inspired to go watch the movie. Yeah, it was it was Hollywoodized. Yeah. And, you know, they, that whole twist with the Alice in Wonderland thing, that's like thrown out right at the beginning of the movie. So that's not even, you know, the big plot twist. And it, like I said, it, it's mildly entertaining, but you know I wouldn't certainly go rush to see it. I completely agree with you there. So bringing it back to the story itself, let's talk about it in terms of the whoa, hmm, what the fuck scale. What do you think about this the one? Patent the patent pending whoa, hmm, and what the fuck scale. That's right. <laughs> I don't think it patent such a thing, but hey, maybe we can get like two or three pennies a year of royalties on it. Copyright. That's right. The key to success in the modern media era. Yes. So is it does it lean in one way or another for you, Dan? Well, to me, I would say Mimsy falls in the whoa category because that, that final scene where the, you know, the children are disappearing into the other weird dimension or whatever we're calling it. And, you know, just with the whole buildup of the idea that there's that you could be trained somehow in, in perceiving a new way of the universe, that to me is just, it, that's pretty out there. It may even border on the what the fuck, but I'm, I'm giving it a solid woe for me. Yeah, I, I go along with that. And then I think some of the implications, you know, how, how do we begin to think about the idea of, of the alien? How do we begin to think about the idea of, of transformation of the self, of the psyche, I think there's there's some some stuff that makes you think, and so I, I think it's got a, a a healthy hmm element to it. But I'd say that it's primarily a woe for me. And as I say so often on the show, yep, 
I agree. So that gives us probably a solid double woe from Bill and Dan on Mimsy. So transitioning ahead to the next story, um, still looking at the whole idea of alien psychology, we're going to cover a very relatively unknown story by a very well-known author, Robert Heinlein, called They. Make sure you come on back for that one. 